0: My guest for the day has been in the culinary world for over 40 years. He has accomplished so much in his work, doing everything from being the executive chef, overseeing hundreds of chefs, and feeding thousands of people every day at Epic Systems, to founding Cycropia, the amazing, incredible aerial dance company that still exists here in Madison. This is the Madisonian Podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Brown. I was interested in today's guest because of my former guest, Odessa Piper, put in a strong recommendation for this amazing Madisonian. I started to research and had a glimpse of some of his incredible accomplishments. When I got into the interview, my perception of how amazing he actually was changed completely. Now enjoy my amazing interview with the incredible chef, Eric Rupert. This is part one of my interview with Eric Rupert. You should listen to part two where he will talk about the true roots of everything that he's learned about being a chef and overcoming so many jobs and so many obstacles throughout his journey. The second part will be released on Thursday.
1: My name is Eric Rupert and I am a chef. I'm also an owner of Nutcrack and the chef at Nutcrack as well. I was born actually here in Madison and uh, a long time ago and um, grew, have grown up in the area, um, left a few times for what I thought were greener pastures, but um, am just from here and my being and my body are from here and I love it here. It feels familiar. I love other parts of the world too, but um, this is my home.
0: Yeah. So what, what was school like for you? what kind of um
1: show what kind of kid was I um well as you've probably learned and uh, that Midwesterners are not great at talking about themselves Um, but um, I think I was a pretty thoughtful um, kid I liked being outdoors a lot Um, very active I'm a very kinesthetic learner I, I learned best um by doing things by doing things with my hands or doing things with my body um doesn't mean i can't learn you know through hearing things or seeing things but my my father um was in the trades and and always told me doesn't matter what somebody's doing if they're good at, good at it watch them you know so that might be a plumber or um he was a stonemason um you just whatever somebody's good at just or a musician just watch them and, and hear them and you know if you're really lucky you can ask them questions too um so I, I was pretty inquisitive um kind of quiet mostly um I think I
0: don't know I, I
1: didn't think too hard about what I was like Yeah, you know, when you're a kid you don't think about how
0: you are as a kid right so. right so yeah. when when were you first introduced to good cooking or food or what was your relationship with food as a kid?
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, my mom, uh, my mom, uh, we, we grew up, uh, how do I put this? Uh, very, very modest means. And, um, my mother just had this ability to make great food, not fancy food, just food. And I'm convinced it's because she cooked with love and she loved us and it was a way that she could love us. Um, her food was always, always delicious. And again, it was, it was never fancy. Um, We had gardens. And so we were, you know, cooking from the gardens when we could. Um, We didn't grow up eating a whole heck of a lot of meat because meat was expensive. Um, But we always sat down together uh, for dinner together uh, at six o'clock. If you weren't there at six, you were kind of out of luck. Most likely I have um, younger brothers and so we all knew to to be there at six, otherwise you might get stuck with a peanut butter sandwich for dinner. Um, so that was that was always really important. And um, yeah, things back, you know, we're talking like late '60s, and we were eating tacos. I mean, they were, you know, a tacos, but they were still tacos. That was not a that was yet to get be popular at that point. So right. Um, just my mom tells this story. In fact, it's it's um, it's documented uh, because when I was very very young, uh, we lived on an old farm house in an old farmhouse out near Dalyville, Wisconsin, and it at the time didn't have running water, um, and I think it had electricity. I'm not sure if it did or didn't, but um, I actually remember. Um, being in like my playpen, um, sort of, you know, standing up, holding on to the sides and watching my mother cook. Um, I, I remember that visually. I don't remember other details, but my mother, um, because my father was um, in, would go to Madison to, to work and oftentimes was gone like for the whole week. Um, he worked very, very hard. Um, and so here's my mom, you know, a young woman um, with a a baby by herself on a farm Um, and so she would write her mother letters every day or almost every day and my grandmother would write her letters back and um, after my grandmother passed away my, my mother gave me a lot of the letters that had gone to my grandmother and I was going through one and she wrote about the time that I was in my playpen, and she was apparently making meatloaf. Um, again, I as a baby, I don't remember that piece of it at all. Right. Um, but apparently uh, while watching her, and I, I was you know, probably a year and a half, maybe two um, at most, uh, she put it in the oven, the meatloaf in the oven, and I told her flat out that she'd forgotten the onions. And, mm-hmm. um, so so I think that, and it, it, you know, to add to that, I remember things much farther back than I think most people for some reason I I've swapped stories over the years and every single one of them um, of those vivid memories even from when I was you know even before I was a year old um, have a flavor um, and if not a flavor uh, an aroma or a smell involved with them um, I can remember the first time I had turkey for instance turkey and gravy I was on a train going to Ohio and I was like 14 months old um, I can remember, um, I, I just remember so many things, and they all have flavors or, or smells associated with them. And that's how it's been all my life, So for, for better or for worse. Um, I can't eat circus peanuts. So I won't go into why, but um, I, let's just say I eat too many of them um, while at the zoo and uh, just ruined circus peanuts for me forever.
0: So when you were in middle school and high school, what what was on your mind for a career path or what did you want to, what were you thinking you wanted to do for a living?
1: Um, you know, people would ask me apparently when, even when I was very little, uh, you know, in the way that adults always ask little kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer was very consistently, um, happy. That's, I just want to be happy. Um, now in my head, I, you know, I think I wanted to be, I think, uh, well, I wanted to study dinosaurs, you know, when I was much younger, uh, paleontologist. I wanted at one point to be a doctor, um, and food didn't—it never really crossed my mind to do food as a living until, until, in my late teens. Um, but yeah, I think that's those are the two occupations that I think, uh, I remember the most.
0: So out of high school, what did you do or?
1: Sure. Well, um, for a little background and for people in Madison, they'll, you know, they'll understand that. Um, so I'm so old that actually when I was in high school, there was two alternative high schools. There was city school and there was Malcolm Shabazz high school. And, um, City School was located in the Longfellow building down near the hospital near um, uh, Meritor Hospital. And I split my time between West High School and City School. Um, and I did really well. I liked the academic um, classes that were being offered at West. and I really wanted to play soccer. So I could do that. It was a band. Um, but then I could also go down to City School and um, take classes like speleology or caving um, or rock climbing. Um, or get much farther ahead than I think I could have uh, in math because there was four kids in the class. Um, So, you know, when I was in high school, um, I did actually work for the very first Dottie Dumplings dowry. Um, And most people, if you've been in Madison for any length of time, remember it being on Regent Street. Um, However, the very first Dottie Dumplings dowry was on Monroe Street in a little Quonset hut um, where there's a whole new, you know, sort of development right across from Orange Tree Imports, essentially. Right. I, grew right. up, I grew up in that neighborhood. And honestly, when we were, you know, young, you never needed to leave that neighborhood, really. You had everything you needed. You had a grocery store. You had a shoe store. You had a clothing store. You had a gift store, hardware store, appliance store, pharmacy, um, printer, uh, bakery, uh, really barber. Uh, Bernie's Rock Shop was right there, so what more could you really need? Um, and we we didn't have to leave the neighborhood uh, very much. So when I let's see, your original question was uh, when I was in high school. Yeah, you know, when I was in high school, I, I I worked at Dottie Dumplings Dowry. I uh, formed the hamburger patties, and I would also um, clean up once it closed at nine o'clock. I could run literally run down the down the street and, and uh, clean up. Uh, so they'd be ready for the next day.
0: And And, and did you work there out of like a, a longing to work in a kitchen or was that just for convenience and, or for money or uh, yeah, I think it
1: was it was probably more for money. Uh, <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I, w- I, I would have to go with that. I, I at that time was um, uh, very much into uh, bicycling. And so I had to fund my uh, pretty expensive, you know, bike habit, uh, making four dollars an hour and working probably uh, twelve hours a week at Dottie Dumplings Bowery. So uh, it didn't didn't, it didn't didn't make me a lot of money, but um, it was fine. And it you know taught me responsibility, and I was given a key and was trusted, and um, you know it was good good work work ethic. Um so uh, then also while in high school, um, my, I noticed an ad one day, it was a Puppeteer Wanted. Uh, and I thought, well, sure, why not? Uh, so I, I answered the ad and they, they were a little, it was actually a professional um, puppeteering company that was here in Madison um, that would go around primarily to fairs and schools and uh, but it was very professional and very very well done, and um, I had no experience, of course. But um, apparently, I I aced the uh, the interview <laughs> and talk, talked my way into being a, a professional puppeteer for a few years. So we went around the went around the Midwest and performed a bunch. And um, I still still love love puppets. It's like moth and rod puppets. So think uh, like. Kermit the frog is a good example of a mouth and rod puppet. So, so I did that I did one in high school too. And that was one of the advantages of going to the Shabazz was, or to city school was because um, the little flexibility, as long as your grades were good, you, they, you know, you're doing interesting things outside of school. They would try to accommodate those needs.
0: Right. So, so what was next for you after the puppeteering or, or what experience did you get out of the, being on tour in the midwest and what Um, was next after that
1: what was next uh well you know i did some theater in high school uh we we because it was city school we were able to take some pretty interesting trips um again we spent a lot of time outdoors either rock climbing or caving we went up to um isle rail national park a couple times just really good immersive um learning And, and i i did really well with that so um, let's see, in high school, you yeah, know, I, I think you can ask just about any adult will say, you know, you couldn't pay me enough to go back and do high school. Um, I I continued to work. Um, I think when I was in my senior year, i had hatched a plan, and it's one of the times I moved away. I moved out to Seattle. This would have been, um, I'll, I'll sort of tip my hand and tell you how old, how old I am, but... In, in 1981, um, we're in the middle of a huge recession, I moved out to Seattle and honestly, with the hopes of finding a job, establishing residency so I could go to college um, in, in Seattle, or, uh, or sorry, in, in uh, Olympia. And um, there were just no jobs to be had. So um, from there, I, I sort of bummed a trip down to visit my aunt and uncle down in Petaluma. I'd never met them in California and hung out there for a while, and went up to Yosemite, mm-hmm. and um, then actually came back and uh, enrolled in college. Um, I, I, was, um, I I really wanted to um, learn how to read the uh, Tao Te Ching, um, uh, classic Chinese um, writing. But I wanted to be able to read it in Chinese. So why not? I, I started studying um, uh, Mandarin Chinese in, at the UW um, and loved it, um, absolutely loved it. Um, I did that for a while, but I wasn't, I wasn't degree driven at all. I was just interested in, in learning. Um, so I took Chinese, a lot of Chinese, uh, took a little Japanese, a little Tibetan. Um, all the while, uh, I had gotten hired on at the Ovens of Brittany. On Monroe Street, um, and that was really the first job that I had. I actually technically got hired as a dishwasher. That lasted all of about four days, um, and they had an mm-hmm. opening in the bakery. and And for context, um, the Ovens of Brittany really was way ahead of its time um, in terms of food quality. But it's it's hard to explain that. Um, Food back in the early '80s, there wasn't a lot of good food anywhere in this country. Um, The best food was being made by the mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers and the people that you know in 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 home kitchens. That was the most real cooking there was. There was not what we see today. There was no such thing as uh, farm-to-table in rest—not restaurants. Farm-to-table was something that was done in people's homes. and so, you know, when the ovens showed up, um, that was really uh, captured people's attention. It was thoughtful. It was well done. It was well prepared. Um, good ingredients. And so I started out, as, as I mentioned, as a dishwasher, then got hired um, by Janie Capito. Um, and that, that's a name who, you know, she really impacted the Madison food scene. Uh, Lazy Jane's, that's the, the Jane of Janie Capito. Um, Mickey's uh, Bar, uh, she had Botticelli's along the way. But when I got hired at Ovens on Monroe Street in 1981, um, she was the general manager and um, she gave me a chance to work in the bakery. And that is where I i, I just fell in love with, with food and, and being able to make it. I didn't know that I could do it. Now, to be clear, all the while growing up as a kid and, and through high school, um, I, I did cook. Right. Um, I, I cooked at home. Um, I think when I was a freshman in high school, somewhere in there, um, I decided I, I wanted to be a vegetarian. And my mother looked at me and said, "That's fine, um, but you absolutely have to um, make sure you get enough protein." I think you know, it was sort of on the front side of growing mm-hmm. and. Um, she was just, she didn't really know what being a vegetarian meant, but if that's what I wanted to do, that's fine. But I also, it meant that I had to cook a lot of my own food, which was great. It introduced me to um, ways of cooking that I had not eat, tasted or, or experienced before. And it got me in the kitchen a lot more. Um, I ate a lot of eggs too. My mom was always just make sure you get your protein. So I ate a lot of eggs. Um, and, and very I mean, I was making soufflés when I was a sophomore or junior in high school. Um, which I still remember. Finally, they didn't always turn out, uh, but you learn as you go. So, uh, fresh pasta. Uh, I remember making pesto. My mom actually made pesto, and then I made it too. It was, again, we just these are commonplace things now, but back then they were not commonplace at all. Right. Um, so, Ovens of Brittany um, taught me a lot. It taught me about hard work. Um, which I think, if, if it's even possible, I think I, I picked up my father worked extremely hard. And so work ethic was, um, and I think it's just part of Midwestern culture too. Um, so work ethic was instilled. Also getting up at four in the morning um, when you're 18 years old is not normal um, or, or even easy. But I loved it so much, I, I couldn't wait to get to work. I loved going into work and um you know it was just it was it was so exciting um what we were doing and I it seemed like I had a knack for it um I enjoyed getting better and better and better at things more efficient um it seemed like the more that I could get done um the more opportunities it created to do the really cool things so um when I started that original shift where we would make morning buns and croissants and karen buns and scones and muffins um it it took three people eight hours Uh, it was a three-person eight-hour shift and i loved it so much that um i think two of the folks left after about six months and we just never hired anybody on and i could do the whole shift myself in about six hours Um, and, and we'd increase the production by about threefold in that time. Wow. So, yeah, and I, and I'm not trying to be a modest, I just loved it so much. Every moment, every action that I would take in a kitchen, I came into it with the assumption that I could do it better and faster than the last time I did it. And I've really built my whole career on that. Um, I, I don't know that I'm I I, I probably have the cooking gene Um, but more than anything um, with food and kitchen operations I've just always assumed and approached each day in a way like I don't know anything so that when I walk in I'm in a much more receptive I'm working on the assumption that I have to learn um and and that's really fed me on Every possible level as as we've gone along. Um, Fun little fact um, Monty Scuro of Monty's big fame and Food Fight. Um, I worked with Monty at the Ovens of Brittany. Um, He would come in and sell morning buns um, on the weekends, and and we always hit it off. Um, We grew up in the, the similar, he was a little older than I. Uh, but we grew up in, in the neighborhood. In fact, his family had uh, the Monroe Street Pet Shop uh, right there on Monroe Street, um, which was a common stop on our way home from school each day. So I had known Monty a little bit, um, but it's fun to, you know, say, well, look at him now. Right. Yeah.
0: So take me on your journey in, in cooking. Well, what was next for after I mean, how long did the ovens of Brittany continue, and and where did you sure. go from there?
1: Yeah, I um, so um, they must have noticed that I had a knack for it because um, uh, they had asked me then to uh, become a pastry baker, and so I learned. I went from making laminated doughs and um, breads and scones and muffins and croissants and those sorts of things, uh, which was awesome and loved it. Then to doing cakes and wedding cakes and pastries and puff pastry and um, uh, lots of cookies. Oh my goodness, we made great cookies, but I, I to this day, I can scoop cookies faster than anybody I <laughs> know. Um, and, and all the while, um, the ovens just kept getting busier and busier so much so that they opened one on um, on University Avenue. And then, um, after about three years of, of being a pastry baker, and I loved it. I, I, I love to this day. Um, I, I love going into the bakery at Epic. And uh, if they're decorating cakes or frosting cakes, I very respectfully ask if I can do one. And I, I still can, you know, I can, I can still do it and, and derive joy from it. And it's, it's uncommon for cooks to be able to do that. So um, they, they get a kick out of it too. Um, and then they decided to open uh, another Oven's of Brittany on the east side, um, over on the corner of Fordham and, and Sherman and, and is it Johnson or Gorham. And they asked me uh, to be the bakery manager there. Jeannie Caputo did. So I moved over to there, um, learned a lot about how to, you know, get something up and going from zero. Uh, a lot of work that went into that. All the while, at this point, I'm, I'm also going to, you know, I mean. At the UW full time. So I'm working about 50 hours a week and I've got a full um, school load. It never dawned on me. It's only in retrospect, I think. What was I thinking? It never occurred to me that I sort of had a lot on my plate. Um, so I um, did that and uh, decided that I wanted to travel. Um, so I, I headed off to, um, I moved to Taiwan and uh, and put my my Chinese to, to use there. So
0: so, what was that decision to to move to Taiwan?
1: Um, I had always really admired people that, that traveled, um, whether it be uh, I some of the folks I met in high school, for instance. Once they graduated, they would all travel up to Alaska and work in the fish canneries or on fishing boats, and that I knew that wasn't quite for me, um, but I really wanted. I knew there's a big, wide world out there, and I really wanted to, you know, see what see what it was about. Now that said, um, I learned that I'm not a natural traveler. Um, I'm very glad I did it, um, but I also found it to be very difficult about 75% of the time. Um, but again, I would not trade that experience at all. I went to Taiwan because, um, at the time, in the early 80s, um, or the mid 80s, I suppose. Uh, China proper was not really as open as it is now to um, people from the West, a little bit, but it was just on the front side of opening, whereas Taiwan um, was, uh, you know, it's come on over. And so I taught English uh, to make a little money, um, ate a lot of amazing food, um, and uh, studied Chinese and was there for a while and then um met some folks that had just come back from um and, and that said taiwan um the folks in taiwan were absolutely amazing i just l- never met a mean person there everybody was kind and gracious and helpful and um loved love that piece of it um but it was also a very big crowded hot 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 city um and i was not accustomed to really that Something that big and that hot and that crowded and that um, noisy, and so um, some friends that I had met came back um, from essentially vacation. They gone to Nepal, and um, said, "Oh yeah, you can you can get from Taipei to Kathmandu for about two hundred dollars in airfare, and then for another two hundred dollars you can trek for three weeks, and um, you get yourself a nice little um, you know nice little vacation." So I did that. Um, and um, it was amazing. I, think I was there for uh, Nepal for about uh, six weeks actually, just trekking. Um, sure enough, it was about five bucks a day at the time. Um, loved every second of it. And uh, then from there, uh, went to, flew. Uh, I had a friend, an artist friend that had moved to Paris, and I decided to surprise her. So I uh, showed, up, showed up at her doorstep in Paris, and um, you know, we, we went up to Amsterdam and, and uh, Brussels. And, um, so I, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time in Europe at that time, but uh, um, kind of made my way all the way around the world technically, um, and then showed up at my, at my uh, folks' doorstep unannounced, uh, about 40 pounds lighter than when I'd left, with a pale beard on Christmas Eve, and uh, just about gave my mother a heart attack. So but it is it is a fun memory.
0: So throughout all those travels, were you eating good food? Or did you see, did you have influence? Did the food give you ideas? And?
1: Yeah. I, I, yes, food always gives me ideas, too many sometimes. Um, to be clear, I was I was doing everything on a shoestring the way that you know 23 year old traveling people tend to do. Um, so it was never fancy food. Um, it was oftentimes street food. Um, it was um, oftentimes just you know I will never forget the first baguette that I had in Paris. And that's all that's what I had. And I really didn't have very much money, so I sort of survived on baguette. Um, and occasionally, you know, a, a clementine or a little bit of cheese. Um, but those memories are so embedded in my, in my being. Um, you know, in Nepal, it was rice and lentils every day, um, every day. Um, but I still remember them very fondly. And I'll never forget, um, mind you, I've, I've walked probably you know, 15 to 30 miles a day sort of in one direction for about 10 days, you know, up and down and in, up mountains and down in the valleys. And, and I'm headed down to this valley and I'm on my right and on my left, I'm seeing apple trees. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And I get into this little village and um, I was approached by these kids and they were selling apple cider, like fresh squeezed apple cider. And I cannot tell you, I mean, It was magical, truly. I mean, when you've had nothing but rice and lentils for um, an oatmeal gruel for you know ten days, uh, it was it was extraordinary. And then somebody else approached me; they had made this like apricot um, paste uh, from the orchards there as well, and that was unbelievable. So I I remember buying two kilos of it. So was that about four and a half pounds? and was willing to to lug that around. I was everybody's favorite person. You know, when we get done trekking at the end of the day. Pass a little bit of that around. It was magical. So, yeah. Again, food food and memories are just all bundled up um, together. So, um, let's see. So then I, I back in I'm back in Madison. I go back to the university. Um, I continued studying Chinese. I actually started at the Ovens of Brittany for a little bit. And then uh, the Madison Club um, had a opening. And um, so I applied there and got hired as a baker there. Um, and this part of the story I'll just tell because it, it really did, um, number one, it really did happen. And it was pivotal. Um, as it pertains to where I am now, I um, I was up in that till that point. I'd never been a cook. I I'd, I'd been a, a baker and a pastry chef, and, and honestly, a pretty good one. Um, and I went to see a movie with my girlfriend. It was called The Vet's Feast, and I, I want to say it was 1986 ish. It won. I do know it won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film that year. And um, I'm not gonna pretend to know exactly what an epiphany is. Um, but if there is such a thing as an epiphany, and I, I believe there is, um, I had one. I, 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 While watching that movie, um, it became crystal clear that if I became a cook, it, it just very simple. If I became a cook, everything would be okay. That that was my path. So I went to the chef at the Madison Club This is this big, burly, old-school, kind of scary chef guy. And and I didn't tell him about the movie, of course, because that was not going to be cool. But I just said, hey, but I do remember saying, I need to cook. It wasn't, oh, you know, chef, please, may I, you know, if you have a position anywhere down the future, would you please consider me? I just walked up to him and said, I have to cook. And um, he looked at me and, okay. And it just so happened they had an opening in the kitchen, and so the next day I was given a, a, a the lowest position in the kitchen. Um, it was a classically, you know, set up kitchen in that way. And um, a, a piece of unsolicited advice: never, ever, ever cut lemons with a serrated knife. Um, don't actually, you just don't even need serrated knives. But that's a whole different story, um, because on my very first day of being a cook. Uh, I was cutting lemons with a serrated knife, and um, the knife got stuck on a, a seed, um, bounced out, and then I cut the better part of my um, uh, index finger on my left hand, the, the tip of it off. And um,
0: that was the first day.
1: That was my first day of being a cook. Yeah, oh. I'm, I'm actually as I'm talking to you, I can I look down and and I can see the scar clearly. Um, so the chef came over. Now you have to understand in a kitchen when a cook burns themselves or cuts themselves, um, unlike in the rest of life where people usually provide you some degree of sympathy and understanding in kitchens, it's your own fault and and it is looked down upon and you get no sympathy and you get um, no understanding whatsoever. And you, you, you actually find yourself apologizing to your team because you've taken yourself out of the game for at least, temporarily. Um, and you just, you know, you did something stupid. You cut yourself. So Jeff walks over and uh, at this point I've managed to gather up the tip of my finger um, and it is is really bleeding. He takes the bloody towel because he'd been trimming out some meat that's on his shoulder and he just comes up and he grabs my finger and sort of clamps down on it with his bloody towel and says, come on, let's go. And he Took me. He actually drove me up to the hospital, and the hospital at the time was Methodist Hospital over in West Washington, so it wasn't very far away. And um, he's dropping me off at the emergency um, entrance, and he looks at his watch and he says, "All right, it's ten o'clock. They better be fast because if you want to keep your job, you better be back by 11. And so, at ten fifty-seven, um, I, I literally ran all the way back with this big, you know, big bandage on my my. Finger, thank you, Liz, on my left hand, and, uh, and finished out the shift. Um, but what that kitchen taught me was uh, structure. Um, it taught me a lot of basics. It taught me how to talk and walk and behave in a kitchen. Um, baking is, is uh, I, I love the art of baking. Um, and it is, you've probably heard this before, it is, it is um, a mix of uh, creativity and, and a lot of science. Um, you have to be pretty precise with baking. With cooking, um, uh, you have a lot more, typically you have a lot more latitude and and, and you sort of have to. Um, what I noticed right away is is the first few days I was exhausted because, you know, in, in baking, you are multitasking. You know, you might have, you know, a couple things in the oven and you're mixing something and, you know, you, you're doing two or three things at a time. In cooking, you're doing 17 things at a time. And if you're not, you're not doing it. Right. Um, and you have to be able to um, to juggle those things. And it, it cooking was good for me because um, I, I sort of have the attention span of a of a ferret. Um, yeah. I just um, I, I couldn't focus on any one thing too long to save my life, unfortunately, um, but it's really good for cooking because um, you have to I've, I've used the um, uh, you don't really see it anymore but the, the guys are the people that would spin the plates on the sticks and they'd get like you know 15 or 20 of them going and they could keep them up that's what cookings like for me um, is being able to spin the plates and not letting and not letting them crash so I, I noticed that if I focused on any one thing too long three other things would fall apart and so um, So it was well-suited for being a cook. So over like the next year and a half, it might have been two years. No, it was about a year and a half. Um, And typically people would spend a a year on a station and then get sort of promoted to the next level up of, you know, you go from this little lunch salad guy um, and then you might get moved on to banquets and then you'd move into... um, uh, salad on dinner and then you might work on appetizers on dinner. And and usually these would be stints of anywhere from six months to a year to two years. And, and I, I never really realized it, but they were moving me through these stations to the point where I'd worked all the stations pretty much within about a year and a half. And all the while I was pretty terrified of this chef, um, but I looked back on it and um, he was hard on me, but he clearly thought that I had some sort of intrinsic ability because he pushed me really hard. Um, and periodically it actually kind of reassure me that yeah you just this is for your own good and you will you know you do this and you'll be fine. Right. So my mom calls me one day and, and again this is before computers really or cell phones or anything this is like about uh, 87. And um she said that she'd seen an ad in the I believe it was the Isthmus late was um was hiring cooks, and I said, "Well, that's great, awesome. You know, I'm not qualified to do that." And she said, "Well, you know, there's no harm in applying." So I applied, and I remember the the interview um, quite well. I felt like I just sort of met somebody I could talk to about food, and when when I was talking with Odessa, but I was also really intimidated, and, and you know still young had no I just thought it was way out of my league I got offered the job and so I, I moved to Lawall as a cook and those first months uh, were every moment of every day and I'm not I, I'm not overstating that Like every moment was magical and I would get done with my shift and I would come in early and, and watch other people and I would stay late and I just I couldn't get enough of it um just the things they were doing there were um uh, just uh, so so rooted in in sort of who we are as a food culture we were you know at the risk of being immodest we we had a hand in creating the food culture and and I I think I on some level must have known that Um, I wasn't bright enough to realize it consciously, but um, it was, to me, it was so obvious and simple. You've got an extraordinarily rich earth and land, we're surrounded by it here, and you have growers and producers who are extraordinarily talented, and then you have this farmer's market in normal times um you know right outside our front door literally um where these these people come and you know offer up the fruit of their labor and and the fruit of of this land whether it be cheese or eggs or um fruits and vegetables it's just it's it was, honestly it was like shooting fish in a barrel it was it was really easy to make great food with I've said this a million times, and mostly to the growers and producers, it's like you guys do all the work. You, you know, you make us look really good, but you're doing all the work. And I I mean, I'm a terrible gardener. you know, i I really appreciate what it takes to go into takes to you know bring anything to market, let alone these extraordinarily beautiful vegetables and cheeses. It's unbelievable. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it it, it made our job easy. Um, and it was pretty apparent to me that my number one job was not to screw it up.
0: The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Browning in association with the Art Productions. It's hosted by me, cover art, editing, producing, and booking. Also by me, Ben Brown. If you are a Madisonian and would like to be on the show, please email at benjaminbrownieproductions@gmail.com at gmail.com to express interest. Please support us by buying our merch at teespring.com slash stores slash Madisonianpodcast or click the link in the description of this episode. You can find Nutcrack on Atwood Avenue or order it from nutcrack.com or the link in the description below. All right, it is. it was so happy to have you listening and keep your eye out for part two of this episode. It was so good to have you listening and keep your eye out for November 2nd when the third seasons of the Madisonian podcast goes live.